Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Man, you guys, I had such a good time talking with our podcast guest on the show. I have lead naturalist John Pulpeter. He has been working at the Woodlands Nature Station, which is a nature center in Kentucky for over 23 years. He is a lead naturalist and he works with all different exciting animals, including red wolves, bobcats, alligators, snapping turtles, a variety of different birds, bats. This guy is amazing. And we really, you know, in this interview, go into his passion for conserving backyard wildlife. But we also go into something very different. When John reached out, he actually told me his story. And I was like, oh my goodness, John, we have to get you on the show. He is a huge advocate for people getting outside with disabilities. At the age of 16, John was starting to go blind. And you're going to hear him tell his story. Just imagine if you're 16, you go to the doctor. The doctor says, I'm so sorry, you're you're going blind. This would be very, very discouraging for a lot of people. What John did, though, was take this as an opportunity. And instead of sitting in self-pity, he decided to go see the world. So in his 20s, because he knew he was going blind, he decided to go to amazing places like the Serengeti, the Maasai Mara, the Amazon. He swam in the Great Barrier Reef. He wanted to do all these amazing things. And he also still wanted to pursue a career working with animals. And he did. He did not let his disability get in his way. And he actually used his disability as an advantage. You'll learn that he is fantastic at being able to identify certain bird noises. It's just, you know, bird sounds. It is just incredible. Another thing that is so awesome during this interview is there's a lot of great value bombs in this. So for all of you wanting to, you know, want to become a naturalist or work at a nature center, make sure you stay tuned for the end of the episode because John hires a lot of people and he gives you great advice. And actually he gave one piece of advice I've never heard on the show when I was like, oh my goodness, John, that's amazing. Like great value bomb there. And he made this joke. He's like, man, I'm giving away all my hiring secrets. But I was like, no, this is awesome. Thank you for sharing this with my audience. So if you are someone wanting to work in the animal care field or become a naturalist, make sure to stay tuned where he gives you advice. And we also, I really like, you know, we we talk about backyard wildlife and we talk about how to coexist. We talk about what to do if you have venomous snakes in your backyard. Being, you know, from Kentucky, John, they have four venomous snakes. So we talk about what it's like living with copperheads, living with timber rattlesnakes, all different types of stuff. We also just talk about the benefits of bats. I mean, as you know, this we're huge bat fans. We talk about these amazing benefits and how bats save billions, that's right, billions of dollars with a B for farmers every single year just in the United States. So we talk about all those amazing benefits. Great insight here great information. Okay, before we get to the show, as always, please make sure to rate and review. We appreciate it. Um, Just, you know, it helps get the show out there. I know I say that every single time, but it really, 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 really helps. And if you are listening to the show and you are just enjoying it, let other people know. You could write that review, give us a great rating and share it with your friends and family. Word of mouth is how this podcast is going to grow and how it's going to reach other animal people 
people, other people seeking information about animals and, you know, getting into this field. There's a lot of great insight in here. So please make sure to do that. And also make sure to follow me on my social channels at Corbin Maxi on my Facebook and on my Instagram. You'll especially want to do this because he's going to share some exclusive photos of the critically endangered red wolf. I'll make sure to share that on my social feeds. And John also talks about seeing a leopard, which is, you guys, you know, I love leopards. So I'm going to include that photo too. So make sure you follow me so you can see all of that amazing content. And uh, as always, make sure to subscribe to my channel on YouTube. I am very active on YouTube. Man, I said that with certainty. I'm very active on YouTube. You guys, I am. I love YouTube. I'm on there now. The channel is growing. And the amazing thing is that if we get past a certain amount of views, we will start collecting ad revenue, which is amazing because 100% of the ad revenue will go back to our animals. So if you want to really help us, seriously, just put our YouTube videos on. Just let them play. Let them play all night. Let them play while you're doing the dishes. Just let them play. The more minutes you watch, uh, the more we'll reach our goal to 4,000 watch hours. We're at a little over 3,000 watch hours. So if we get to 4,000, we will start getting um, paid from YouTube. And once again, 100% of that will go back to our animals and will allow us to go film more exciting things. So that's a way you could help us out as well. And that's completely free. I have to also say another reminder to tune in to Thursday nights, Animal Nights Live. This is this has been so much fun. I just I hopefully, you know, if you've listened to the show, hopefully you've had a chance to tune in to at least one of the episodes. But Animal Nights Live is my late night show. I do every Thursday night on my Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at 8 p.m. Mountain Time or 10 p.m. Eastern. And we go live for about an hour with an animal. We go over animal news and we have an animal expert join me and you guys we've had some amazing animals on the show and I can't believe we're like in 20 I don't know 20 something weeks of doing this show straight and it's amazing people tune in all around the world and you can interact with these people it's like one big happy family so if you're looking for something to do on Thursday nights check it out animal nights live and if you are not able to stay up that late I get that a lot of you are in Australia listening uh, you could watch it the next day or in the morning you could actually look at the broadcast on my Instagram or my Facebook. All right, let's get to it. Please welcome to the show, naturalist John Polpeter. I am joined with my friend John. He is a lead naturalist at the Woodlands Nature Station from the Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area. Man, John, that's quite a title. Welcome to the show. It's kind of hard to write it all down because it's just such a long title. It is. It is. Well, I'm so excited to connect with you. You're a naturalist. And I mean, you you reached out to me and you said your focus is backyard wildlife. But you've been in this, you, you've been a naturalist for 25 years. And I thought, oh my goodness, you would be a great guest for the show. Yeah, I'm really excited. Of course, I've been a big fan of the the program for uh, a couple years now. Uh, I definitely try to keep up on the different podcasts, especially during this COVID time period. I've been binge listening to a lot of them. Nice. What has been your favorite one? Was it the Blackfish one or the 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 you know, I, one? Yes. Uh, you know, I really felt that the Blackfish one was very well done. I, I learned so much during that time period, you know, that I didn't know about it. And I was really glad that you had put that online. Okay, thank you. It took, well, as you know, if you listen to the show, it took me a couple of years to do it because I was like, ah, I'm going to get it, whatever. I, I just put it out there. I feel like the response was overwhelmingly more positive than negative. I did get a few negative, but I mean, that's I, it was expected. 
it's you know we need to hear that kind of stuff we need to hear those different perspectives you know so that we're making the right decisions when we're taking care of these animals absolutely so give us a little background uh just i mean where you grew up tell us i mean where your love for nature really began well, you know, just kind of like you and, and a lot of people that are in this field, I almost feel like I was genetically made for this field. Uh, I've always – I've not known a time when I did not know that I liked animals, that I wanted to work with animals. You know, when I was a, a little kid, you know, I would – I was one of those kids that would go out and catch frogs and garter snakes and insects and, and deer mice. Um, I, you know, I was very active. Uh, I grew up on a, a hobby farm in Iowa. Okay. Uh, my mom raised horses, oh, and wow. so we always had I always had pets as well, you know, lots of dogs, horses, cats. Uh, I had a hedgehog for a while, ferret. You know, uh, those are the kind of things that kind of got me excited. Um, uh, I knew that when I was going to grow up that I wanted to work with animals. You know, I'd watch Wild Kingdom and Jacques Cousteau. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I watched uh, PBS Nature. Unfortunately, at that time we didn't have things like Animal planet i would also do some of you know watch a lot of people uh, like you uh your prior people like jack Hanna and oh, yeah. joan Embry on the today show or the tonight show and get real excited about um educating people about wildlife yeah those were my favorite segments to watch as a kid too when you'd see jack Hanna on letterman or you see joan Embry on the tonight show it's like oh my goodness like god they're just just big pioneers in this world you know in the animal world what? And, you know, if you go back and watch the clips of Johnny Carson, those were those are classics. You know, some of the, the way that he responded to a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, later on, I went uh, got my degree in fisheries and wildlife biology at Iowa State University. Uh, then from there, I kind of came down to land between lakes. Well, I worked at a, at a 4-H camp for a number of years and taught kids all about the outdoors. Okay. And then. Land Between Lakes has this great program called an apprentice program, and you can for a year you get the best experiences that you can in the field. And so I came down here and worked for a year, and they they decided to hire me full on. And later on, I became the lead naturalist, and I've been here for twenty three years. Twenty three years. That's a career, man. Congratulations. That's. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people. I hate to call the animal people out in this industry, but a lot of people move around. I mean, it's just part of the job. A lot of people go to different positions around the country. And, and that does. It serves a lot of people. For me, I found everything that I, I kind of wanted was right here. You know, I got, you know, Land Between Lakes is 170,000 acres. It's, wow. it's not too far from my home in Iowa. Uh, I got a lot of animals that I get to care for and take a, uh, take a look at. And they... You know, every day is different here, and that's nice. Yes, and Land Between Lakes, uh, we did not mention that is in Kentucky, correct? That's correct. It actually straddles Kentucky and Tennessee on oh, the western wow. half of the state. So, Oh, it sounds beautiful. I've only driven through Kentucky, but that sounds, yeah, it sounds beautiful. It Both sounds... are gorgeous states. Absolutely. And so you're taking care of a lot of native species, including red wolf, coyotes, bobcats, alligator snapping turtles. Let's go into that. So um, the the one of the things about the land between lakes is uh, on the very north end is this kind of unique area called the woodlands nature watch okay and what that is is uh, about seven thousand acres that's managed for wildlife diversity and wildlife viewing encouraging people to get outside and look at wildlife and the kind of the hub of that is our nature center which is the woodlands nature station now the way that they designed our nature center trying to get people off the beaten path because we're about six miles off the main 
Road is they decided to put in a lot of native uh, wildlife, rescued wildlife, animals that cannot be released back into the wild. They're all deemed non-releasable, but they are representatives of the wildlife that you'll find here in Kentucky and Tennessee. Wow, that sounds amazing. I just, I love that. And are they in, you know, like large naturalistic exhibits along this walk, I'm imagining? Yeah, so we kind of, the way that the nature center is designed is it's kind of incorporated into the forest. So as you're walking along the pass, wow. you know, there's trees everywhere. Uh, it's a great place if people are interested in birding, uh, looking at other wildlife that are attracted to that area. So the, the animals really kind of feel like they're in the, the woods and you just happen to stumble across them. And and like you said, we got we got about 55 different animal species, overall about 110 total animals. And they all kind of represent some of the different animals that we have here. We have one, one or two non-natives that are represent. There was a, a deer called a fallow deer that was introduced <laughs> in the Lambe Lakes yeah. in 1918. Okay. And so we have that as a representative. And then, of course, we have a few animals that we use in our outreach programs, like like we have a domestic rabbit that little okay. kids can touch and stuff. But, yeah. Um, one of the cool aspects of the nature station is that uh, we do have the endangered red wolf. We're yes. one of the 42 species uh, cooperative facilities that are part of a captive breeding program wow. for this extremely rare animal. Yeah, let's talk about that because when I looked at the list of animals, I looked at the website and I saw red wolf. I was like, oh my goodness, these guys are – yeah, let's go into the red wolf really quick for maybe for people who are unaware – of red wolves, because a lot of people think of the gray wolf. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the red wolf is really overlooked. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate because the red wolf is completely American. You know, you're not going to find the red wolf anywhere else in the world except for the south. From Virginia to Texas, from Kentucky to Florida, is the only places that you may find the red wolf. It once was the dominant species here in the south, or at least the predator species. Wow. And unfortunately, they really almost went extinct. And their population got down to about 14 animals and kind of like the California 14. 14. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness, John. Yeah. So that, and that was actually kind of in the location where that, the hurricane Laura is hitting right now is where they found them on the border of Louisiana and Texas. Okay. And like the California condor, they decided uh, back then to, in the 1970s and 80s to capture them all and put them in captivity for extensive breeding programs. And they brought the numbers up to about 200 right now, currently. Only 200. So are these critically endangered? Very critically endangered. There, uh, there's only 20 to 25 of them left in the wild. Um, those had to be reintroduced. They were all completely removed out of the wild oh uh, and then reintroduced into some offshore islands and a place called the Albemarle Peninsula in North Carolina. If you're familiar with the Outer Banks okay. uh, of uh, North Carolina, it's the northeast corner. Uh, there's a couple of wildlife refuges that there's about 20 of them that run there. Weren't there problems I read, or maybe I was listening to a podcast. I think it was the All Creatures podcast, which you mentioned in your email, because <laughs> yeah. they did a fantastic episode on the Red Wolf. Shout out to Chris and Angie. But they <laughs> didn't they have an issue with farmers and livestock, because the farmers were shooting the red these red wolves because they looked like coyotes, or can we go into that a little bit? Yeah, so so what, what kind of basically happened, for about 20 years, the red wolves were doing pretty good. They had a lot of cooperation with the public landowners in that area. 
Uh, actually, a lot of farmers, you know, sometimes we think of, uh, we group farmers together, but a lot of farmers were actually uh, very fond of the wolves because they're row croppers. So they, they grew soybeans and corn and stuff like that, things that, you know, are not impacted by the red wolves. But oh. the red wolves eat the stuff that eat their crops, like deer and raccoons. And so they had a, a pretty good relationship with them f- for a while. But, you know, m- maybe some attitudes changed or uh, uh, we, what happened was that they, the coyotes started moving east. And when the coyotes moved east, they became more of a factor for not only the red wolves, but also many of the people and the landowners. And so they wanted to uh, implement a hunting season for the coyotes. And the problem with that is, is that it's sometimes hard, particularly at night, to tell the difference between a coyote and a red wolf. And that's where some of the troubles got into it. And so they had to reassess uh, the whole red wolf program. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you said there are only 200 left right now and about 20 That's correct. and 20 to 25 in the wild. That is correct. They're in two locations. One's oh a small God. offshore island in Florida. I think there's about 5 down there. And then maybe another 10 to to 15 that's on the in the National Wildlife Refuges in uh North Carolina. Are you guys nervous just about the genetic diversity because there are only 200 animals and you said they all stem from 14 that were all yeah. caught is, is, is so this the, a concern it is a huge concern it is one of the number one th- factors that is involved with the red wolf program but one of the things that they've done very well is that they monitor the genetics and who who mates with who who breeds with who and making sure that they they take in that that genetic diversity into account uh, so every year they have a big conference and they kind of determine who's appropriate for who and making sure that um, certain aspects of, you know, like if there's certain diseases or this particular wolf was not genetically viable, that they take that into account and then they try to match up who does best with which wolf. Okay. And then how many red wolves do you have at your facility? So you so- have a breeding we have a breeding pair. Uh, currently, our, our female died last year of mm-hmm. old age. Um, so we just have our male right now. Mm-hmm. And I just got word in late July that they're going to uh, send us another female. And we're scheduled to breed as for next spring. Wow. And are they very timid, like typical wolf behavior? Yeah. So the thing about the red wolves compared to some of the, because this is part of a recovery program, unlike some of our other rescued animals that we try to have uh, a little bit better of a relationship with, you know, we do some positive reinforcement training. We try to, to work on, you know, uh, work on some of the ways to to manage them a little bit better. But with the wolves, it's a very hands-off approach. They do not want us to have a lot of activity with them, particularly Mm. positive reinforcement, because, you know, they want us, the wolves, to associate humans as something bad so that they choose the forest over the farm if they ever got released, you know, or that their babies or their, their offsprings do not have any kind of positive association with humans. Okay. I mean, that's good. Just Give them the best them success. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Sorry for drilling you on the red wolf. I'm just curious. <laughs> no I'm just like, it turned into a red wolf podcast. Okay. So John, I kind of want to get back to you because, um, what is very interesting is when you reached out to me, you were talking about being a big advocate for people getting outside with disabilities. Can we go into that? 
Yeah, so one of the things that I learned about myself is that at the age of 16, right about the time I was starting to drive, my, my parents and my driver's ed teacher uh, began noticing that I had problems uh, seeing. And so they took me to the doctor, and the, the doctor was looking at my eyes and said, the first question he said is, can you see the stars? Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I was like, no, I can't. And that's when I got diagnosed with a, a common a blindness known as retinitis pigmentosus, or also known as RP. And it's a degener- It's a genetic disorder that's a degeneration of your eyesight. So my retina is slowly degrading over time. Now I've actually stabilized now in my in my 40s, but uh, I I have some partial eyesight, but I lost quite a bit of it during during uh, my 20s and 30s. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it, you know, and and so, you know, it's definitely led me to some different kinds of challenges. Obviously, you can imagine, you know, I'm working with animals and stuff, and and like I said, I, I've wanted to work with animals all my life, and it was kind of discouraged once they diagnosed me not to do that because that would be too hard, and I just was too stubborn to say no. And oh, luckily, well, luckily they, you know, here at Land Between Lakes, they were very accepting, and they gave me a chance, and I was able to take a disadvantage and make it an advantage and you know i actually found that you know because of my eyesight that i can give a different perspective to people you know uh, one of the good th- things that i've learned that i can do is i'm very good at identifying sounds and particularly bird sounds and one of the only ways to to tie you know to really recognize a lot of the birds that you have in a forest is through their sounds, you know, to be able to map their populations, for instance. Wow. And so John, so, so you, you can partially see, um, can you give me yes. an example? I'm sorry. I'm just trying to figure out. Oh, like, no, no. Yeah. I just, I mean, just for the listeners too, because so you are not fully blind. Thank goodness. You are still yeah. able to see. So yeah, this is a common question. It's no problem. Okay. I'm very open about it, okay. but it's, I have, from what I understand from the doctors, they say I have about five to ten percent of what a you know a normal vision person has, Whoa, and okay. it's it's always hard for me to judge that. But sure. you know, I always I always like to say you know if you took like a paintbrush with some paint on it and you flicked it at the wall and it splattered, that's kind of what my eyesight is. Uh, it's it has you know it it has pockets where it's, there's nothing, so I could look at a page of words and see some of the words, but not see a lot of the other words. And when I see an overall picture, I may not see every, everything that's in that picture. I might see a lot of the big things like a tree, maybe uh-huh. a house, not in great detail, but I'm definitely not going to see a bird. I'm not going to see a lot, of, a lot of the other animals that you, you, uh, that I'd like to see, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, your story just from talking to you, it's so inspirational because so many people who get into this field, they face rejection and it's just how this field works, working with animals and trying to apply for jobs. And I, just the fact that at 16, it's like you find out that you are going blind and it's just this career with animals. People are probably like, Oh, you're crazy. Like you can't do that. You're not going to be able to see. And I just can't, but you just went for it. And now you've been a naturalist for 23 years. That's amazing, man. Well, you know, it, it, oddly enough, Corbin, it, it kind of helped me a little bit find my passion. Yeah. And, and it's kind of weird to say this, but like, so in college, you know, when I'm trying to figure out, you know, that I'm not going to be, you know, a uh, out on the Serengeti studying lions, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm not going to be doing some of that stuff. 
I took a class called Nature Interpretation, and it was a great class. And, and they put me in front of a group of kids, and I found out, oh, my gosh, I can do this. And the, the role for me in this field with animals is education. And that's what gave me my in. And so from that point, I, I moved down that track. And, you know, environmental education is actually very forgiving. I, I've, I've worked in this field and I've run across a lot of people that have disabilities. And it's, you know, it's, it's something that a lot of people that have some challenges can do. Wow. I just, well, I really take my hat off to you. That is just, just incredible to find your passion. And now I just, my goodness. And you, so you said before your eyesight got too poor, you were able to travel though, correct? That's correct. And, and, you know, so like, you know, as I kind of mentioned before, I wanted to, to study animals around the world. You know, I love Africa. I think Africa is amazing. And so something that kind of spurred me on knowing that I was going to lose my eyesight was I, during my 20s and 30s, I spent a lot of time and a lot of money <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and, and, and traveled across the world to be able to see places like the Serengeti, the Amazon, the Great Barrier Reef, the Outback, oh my uh, the gosh. Amazon. Yeah. You know, a lot of people want to go see Paris and London, uh, you know, and those sound pretty fun to me too, but I wanted to, I wanted to see, I wanted to see lions and I wanted to see elephants and I wanted to see you know, a koala and, uh, you know, see monkeys in the Amazon. And, and so I spent some time trying to go to those different places. And luckily my family was very accommodating me and that my dad has also got the travel bug. And so he went with me a couple places. My brother went to a couple other places. So I've been to Kenya, Tanzania, Peru, Mexico, Ireland, Australia, and Tanzania, I think. I may have forgotten one. But. Oh, wow. Okay, we have to... Okay, I'm a huge Africa person too, man. I get it. I get it. Um, so tell me your first thought of the Serengeti. That, it was great. So, like, we, we pulled up into the Serengeti, and we came in from the south. And uh, the first thing we saw standing underneath an acacia tree was a cheetah. Oh. Just, just sitting there. We pulled right up, and it was just underneath that tree, just not a care in the world. I mean, and that was part of the Serengeti. that was a little bit more desolate, you know, a little bit, it was oh, a flat good. plain and didn't have a lot of other things going on for it. But that cheetah was just right there. And I just remember that. I remember every element of that. And of course I had some eyesight at that time. And I had also visual aids that would help me. Like I, I had a camera that had an automatic focus. And so when I would point it at the object, once I found it, it would clear it up for me to the point where I can see it. And I just remember every detail about that cheetah because that was my first cat, basically. Wow, wow. And then you also went uh, north to the Maasai Mara in Kenya, correct? Yeah, that was a separate trip. That was in 2003, and uh, that was beautiful. The colors there was amazing. Lots of lions, lots of elephants. It was everything that they, they tell you about uh, or that you see in uh, nature programming. Uh, it was a great experience. Uh, on that trip, I, I know this is a big question that you always see. I here's some of your past, Brooke. I got to see leopards. Oh, John, I always ask people, <laughs> okay, tell me, have you seen a leopard? Did you really in the Maasai Mara? So I did. So I saw a leopard on my first trip to Tanzania, uh, up in an acacia tree. Uh, not a very good one, it was a long distance. Uh, so that was my 2000, but my 
my ones that I saw in uh, Kenya was at in Samburu Game Reserve, which is oh. north end of Kenya. And I saw two of them. And the first one, this is kind of a good visual one, uh, we pulled up and it was in this evergreen tree. And I could not see it. I could not see it. Everybody was seeing it. It was up in the tree. And I was getting frustrated, you know, because I wanted desperately to see it. And I just said, please, please, please. And the next thing you know, the leopard jumped down and walked to my Jeep and mm. sat outside my door. Oh, my God. I got this amazing picture of the sunlight hitting this female leprous just right outside my, my door. I could not believe it. I just could not believe that, that I had that experience. And then a couple days later, I ran across, uh, just driving down the road, a, a male leopard, a big guy, just standing by the next, sitting next to the road. And he's looking at this bush, and he's just staring at it. And it's fantastic. I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening. What is he looking at? And then you don't see anything in the bush. It's just a bush. And then all of a sudden he gets up and runs and jumps in the middle of the bush. And that bush explodes with impala, hornbills, vervet monkeys, dick dicks, just all these animals that were hiding from the leopard just burst out of there like like it just popped and uh, i don't know if he got anything or not but because he just kind of disappeared but it was just amazing everybody was hiding in there and i got to see those leopards wow that story gave me chills with the leopardess just to oh that came down and sat right by your jeep door that is incredible man that is i could not believe it I can't believe it either. I need to see photo proof, John. You might be pulling my leg. No, I'm kidding. I totally believe you. No, I mean, for... I would, uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I'll be glad to show you the pictures. I, I, like I said, it was, it is by far my, my favorite picture that I ever took of, of anything in Africa. So. That's amazing. And for those of you who are new to the show or maybe don't know, leopards are so hard to find in Africa. <laughs> like, they're so elusive. They are at the top of everyone's you know list and i've been a few times and i've never seen a leopard it's killing me <laughs> go to samburu i think you'll have a little bit better luck there uh it's kind of a scrubland but they i just i samburu. was yeah, surprised that okay yeah. i've heard of that and i've heard just out of curiosity because i've been to the mara but i've never been to the serengeti did you prefer one over the other you know um the Serengeti, I, I saw a lot more diversity at the time. I, I think it's because the wildebeest were down there mm. uh, during their, their migration. The Maasai Mara was just filled with color. It was just amazing the color that I that was there. Mm. Uh, I got to, you know, in the Maasai Mara, I got to see the big crocodiles, you know, the ones that eat wildebeest. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got to see lots of elephant. Um Got to see the baby giraffes, which was real cool. Uh, a lot of lions were there, and I got to see a black rhino, which was oh, nice. Oh, yes, the black rhino, man. I, so I did see the black rhino twice, actually mm -hmm. three times. Yeah, the black rhinos. There's only like, well, at the time when I went, like 25 left, and I'm sure there were more when you were there, but – yeah, that was the Maasai Mara. And by the way, if you're wondering, if you are traveling to Africa, this is like where you go, the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara, because it's just like this ecosystem. You know, it's all part of the Serengeti ecosystem. And the Maasai Mara just has the highest concentration of predators and prey. That's what makes it so enticing and exciting to go. Yeah, I, I definitely got a lot of great 
views. And, and that's the thing that was nice about Africa with my vision was the animals are so accustomed to the patterns that humans do there, you know, as far as driving up in the, the land rovers mm. and uh, that you can get kind of kind of close to them and, and be able to see them in, in you know, their details and their, from a distance, you know. So. That's amazing. Did you see wild dogs in the Serengeti? You know that that's that is the one thing I did not get to see. So <laughs> oh, that sorry. that is my leopard. <laughs> Bring up a sore subject. Okay. <laughs> that that I wanted to see wild dogs and 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 uh, I was not necessarily disappointed because the whole trip was just overwhelming. But um, uh, it is the one thing I didn't get to check off the list. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, you'll have to go back, man. See wild dogs. You go down to South Africa. You know. No, exactly. And that is on my bucket list to go down to South Africa because, uh, um, you know, I've been reading a lot about it lately and I'm getting the travel bug again. Yep. So I'm definitely wanting to, to head down to um, Namibia and South Africa. Yes. And I think Botswana has them, too. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. Sorry, guys. We went on an Africa tangent. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, I know. I mean, God bless all the people who want to go to London, Paris, whatever. But I'm with you, man. I would way, way, way rather go to Africa or something to see something natural, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were great experiences. I'm going to have those experiences forever. I think if you talk to some of my staff, they get tired of me telling Africa stories. So uh, because it was just such a, an important event in my life. And I'm very happy that I went, especially at the time that I did with my vision, uh, as it was where I was able to still see things. I'm still going to go and just take a chance, you know, and something will pop up. But uh, uh, I just it it was well worth the 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 the, the toil of raise, you know, trying to get that money and being a broke for a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's expensive for sure. Did you feel when I was at Africa, I just felt at home? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, and I, it just, everybody was so friendly, mm -hmm. uh, so welcoming. I mean, I, I never felt any church or, you know, any, any worry or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, it was, everything was great. So I, the, like I said, the people were so fun. I, it was just as fascinating about learning about the people as I was the animals too. Yeah. Did you see a mosquito? No, I, you know, I didn't really. Have <laughs> Neither did I. Neither did I. You have to get all these shots, like your West Nile <laughs> shot, and everyone's like wearing bug repellent, and you have these nets you sleep under. And I did not see one mosquito. I so I, I live on the Snake River, and literally, I have so many mosquitoes here. I didn't see <laughs> one in Africa. I did not see yeah. an African mosquito. I did not either. I mean, uh, and and we were out, you know, in some. And then we weren't out in swampy area. Everything was kind of dry there. I, I think on my first trip, one of the neatest places we stayed, there's a, a, a national park there called Terengeri mm -hmm. in Tanzania. It's a great place or was a great place for elephants, uh, but a lot of had a lot of baobab trees. And the place, the camp we were staying in was called Treetops. And I'm like, huh, I wonder why it's called Treetops. I wonder if we actually sleep in the trees. And we pull up in the Land Rover and all we're just everything's tree houses. Like a what? platform to baobab trees. Yeah. Oh my god. And, and and so you're up there and I'm like, Oh man, we're just gonna get eat alive but no, there was not even really mosquitoes there. You know, yes. I didn't I did not get bothered at all. So that is so cool. Okay. So then your adventures. So you've also been to the Amazon. How was that experience? You said that was great. Now, you know, Amazon 
you know, something, of course, it, it, it's, it's the most diverse place in the world. And so we took a boat from Iquitos up to the confluence of the Amazon. And that was a little bit more of a struggle for me uh, because, you know, we're in a rainforest. You know, it's easier for things to hide. A lot of things, more things are camouflaged. So I didn't have the kind of the exact same experience as I did in Africa. But, you know, I got to see some really cool stuff. I got to see sloths, which was a wow. neat thing. Wow. Uh, lots of monkeys. Uh, but the my favorite memory of going up the Amazon was we, we took an excursion boat up to this the confluence of these two rivers, the Tapichi and the Ukali River. And one's a, one of those black water rivers and one's a kind of a muddy brown river, and they kind of mix there. And when we pulled up at this particular confluence, it's filled with dolphins. Like wow. the two species of dolphins, like the the Amazonian river dolphin and uh, the gray dolphins were there. And I guess what our guides were saying is because it's a mixture of fishes and, you know, uh, the fish are a little bit easier to catch there. So these dolphins are just like popping up everywhere. And, oh, man, there had to have been several dozen that were just hanging wow. out there. And that was just kind of a – I don't know. That was like a National Geographic moment. It was just It's hard to kind of calculate how wonderful that was. So you saw the pink river dolphins. Yeah, several times. Yeah. That is so amazing. And if it makes you feel better, I've talked to a lot of people who've done the Amazon and a lot of people don't see stuff either because <laughs> it's so <laughs> like, no, seriously, because it's so yeah. dense and it's like things are camouflaged. And yeah, like... <laughs> yeah it, it was definitely a tough. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm better for like Savannah than I am for rainforest. Yeah. Yeah. Were the insects pretty bad there? I'm going to imagine. They, yeah. So that was. Uh, um a bad place for them. Like they were, they were warning us that malaria had broken out in near Iquitos. And so they're going to make sure that you take precautions. And, uh, I remember one time I was in an excursion boat and I, you know, after like two weeks, you're kind of just, ah, whatever, yeah. you know? And so I was out in, um, one of the excursion boats and the lady was next to me and she was dressed up with a hoodie and long sleeves, long coat and lots of bug spray. And they were just surrounding her like I've never seen before. And I was in like Tevas and a T-shirt and shorts. And and I was like, I wasn't getting bit at all. I I, I just I must taste terrible. I don't, <laughs> but she was just uh, really uh, bothered by them. So, wow, but, that's <laughs> that's funny. Well, I'm happy they didn't really bother you, man. I'm yeah. so happy. So so also talk to me a little bit about the Great Barrier Reef and just Australia because that's on my bucket list and probably for a lot of people listening. Yeah, so you know, um I went with there with my brother and we kind of went up and down with New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Kangaroo Island, which okay. I'm so happy that you and All Creatures podcast gave such focus on it during the Australian fires because that does definitely has some emotional tie for me, uh, mm -hmm. what happened down there and, uh, went up to Cairns and Port Douglas and did two trips to do snorkeling. I'm not a scuba diver and went in, uh, at, at Cairns, we went out on a catamaran and, uh, went to this K Michael, Michaelmas K and it was a beach that had some nesting birds, sooty terns and lesser crested terns. And uh, you just hopped in the water with your snorkel gear and you kind of just float in this super clear water. And the thing that I remember about that the most besides just the clarity of the water was the, the, the animal that I remember the most that was so unique that I was so excited about is I saw a giant clam. 
And, and hold I'm on, hold on. I'm like thinking of like this epic shark or like this <laughs> this sea turtle or this like amazing okay, you saw a giant clam. How big know, was it, this clam? Oh, I don't know. It was like three feet. I mean it was what? huge. And I was looking down at it and it had its mouth open or the shell open. I'm like, oh my god, if someone stuck their hand in there and got you know <laughs> closed, <laughs> you're screwed. And it was it was fascinating just to see that the size of thing you know i've never seen anything like that before you know a lot didn't get to see any you know like sharks or sea turtles or anything like that but uh that clam really stuck in my mind because it was just so large and something i'd never seen before a three-foot clam man that sounds pretty cool yeah it it was it looked like you know what they you see in like cartoons or something i was just that kind of that kind of big and then uh, we went out uh, out of Port Douglas to the main barrier reef, and it, once again, it's just the colors. It was just the colors everywhere. You know, it's it was amazing. And you jump out in the water, and, you know, you just see – I've never really been in the ocean like that before where you just see nothing down into to the depths, and then you see the barrier reef. So I swam over to the barrier reef and, and uh, you know, kind of exploring, and um, it was kind of wavy that day. And the waves picked me up and kind of, unfortunately, put pushed me down on on the coral a little bit, oh. and it cut cut my knee. And all I could think of after that point was a shark can smell a drop of blood of water, <laughs> a drop of blood for miles. <laughs> but I, I never really experienced any um, sharks or anything. It was just color everywhere, you know, just tons of fish. Uh, you know, the reefs themselves were just magnificent. Uh, everywhere you looked. Wow. That just, oh my God, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. And you also went to the Andes Mountains, which you said was pretty amazing yeah, that was, too. Yeah, we, well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, uh, so we went to the, to the Andes after the Amazon, just to the side trip to go see Machu Picchu. And oh, yeah. and the, the mountains are just, you know, it's just amazingly tall and and. and dramatic just mm-hmm. when you look at them I mean, you're from the rockies and you're pretty used to that but for me being from iowa you just don't see that kind of thing from the, <laughs> the sides of the how steep these things were and one thing i knew when i went to machu picchu was that was not designed by ada standards <laughs> <laughs> definitely dangerous for a blind person because the all the stairs were of course uneven because it was built you know 500 years ago but yeah. uh you know they had this main patio uh, on the on the, like this deck that they had built, the Incas did, and you step off it and it's game over. It's oh you're God. you're you're down in the river about a thousand feet down, and it's oh just like oh my gosh. Yeah, I was I was particularly nervous there, but it was it was a, it was it was amazing to see the the amount of skill that those ancient people were able to do with the little tools that they had. And um, another kind of cool thing I got to see there wildlife-wise was um, I'm big into hummingbirds, and I got to see several different species of hummingbird. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see like a giant, but I, you know I got to see a number of different ones that are much larger than the ones that we have here. Wow, that sounds great and a little terrifying, John. Like I don't <laughs> <laughs> like I. Yeah, I mean I don't know, man. Good for you. That sounds great. I mean, <laughs> good for you. So. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say, I definitely, uh, my dad was with me at that point, and he was on watchdog duty right there. He was he was very nervous about me being there, but I, fe- I still felt comfortable, even though I had to watch my step, and, and it, it, it was a unique experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's kind of circle back because I know your focus because you because, you know, in your email, you said when you were younger, you wanted to focus on conserving like the, the megafauna, like your elephants, your rhinos, your lions, which you still do. But you focus now mainly on backyard wildlife and what's in people's backyards. Can we go into that and the importance of saving native species? Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up as, as many of us that have gone into this field have, have done, we're very moved by those scenes of polar bears, uh, or, or the lions and, the, and what's going on with elephants and rhinos. And, and I, I'm desperately one to try to save those things, but it's, it's, it, you know, what I'm finding as I got into this job that we have a big job to do just right here in our own backyard. Right now, the United States you know, probably one of the hardest habitats right now is, is there your lawn, your lawn, no animals, not a lot of animals can survive on your lawn. And we have lawn in this country. That's the size of new England. That is basically green desert. And, you know, you know, when you think about it, you hear all these, these stories that are in our backyard. So we're having chytrid with frogs. We are having white nose syndrome with bats. Monarchs are disappearing. Uh, salamanders are a worry right now. Snake fungal disease. Uh, you know, native bees are disappearing. Global insect decrease. Uh, they've, you know, over the last 50 years, we've lost so many billions of birds, and it's kind of like a silent extinction. We we're not aware that it's happening around us. You know, 10 years ago, you might have noticed that you had 15 cardinals in your backyard, but did you notice that it dropped down to 11 and then six? And then five. And then did you notice that you didn't hear any this spring uh, because of some of the land practices that we're doing in our yards? And it's so critical that we kind of change some of our practices. And when it comes to conservation, there's a lot of a lot of doom and gloom about things. But this is a project that we can directly each individual person can directly change by just making a few modifications to the way that we do things. Now, John, but we have to, I mean, okay, but like people want green lawns. It's just, it is what it is. I mean, people, like, it's hard to convince someone to turn their, you know, to not have a green lawn. So what can someone do who still wants a green lawn? Can you turn, I, I, what, what, what would your suggestion be? Oh, no, I agree. I agree. It's good. It's, that would be a hard road to, to, for a lot of people to turn to get away from the green lawn thing. But there are certain modifications that you can do to your yard, make different choices. Okay. And one of them is planting native plants. If you can plant most of your yard, if most of your yard is 70% native plants, which there are a lot of great native plants out there, then you can turn the trend around. Um, and you can still have your roses, you can still have your vegetable garden, you can still have your green grass. But you know, you can you can turn some of the stuff around by by planting, say, certain trees. Uh, let's, so let me give you an example. So right now we're losing a lot of birds. You know, okay. it takes about six thousand caterpillars to raise one clutch of chickadees. Six thousand. Okay? Yeah, dude, to, that is to, my favorite fact I have heard. Okay, <laughs> that the giant clam has just been yeah. <laughs> six thousand caterpillars just to raise yeah. a couple chickadees. Oh my god. Yeah, okay. and, and 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 caterpillars are are great because they're they're very fatty. They have a lot of proteins, so you can raise a lot of young. And ninety five percent of songbirds raise their babies on. Uh, 
on caterpillars and, and insects. Okay. And unfortunately, we have a lot of non-native plants that are being planted in people's yards that the insects that we have around us don't or can't use. They, they, they're not used to their chemicals. Uh, and so they just don't touch them. And that's one of the advantages to those plants. But it does no good for the wildlife that we have in our yard. But if you say plant an oak tree, like a native oak tree, okay. a native oak tree will attract 557 different caterpillars to it to, to eat. And that provides a lot of extra food. Plus, the oak tree itself provides a lot of other ecological services, like for the squirrels or blue jays or red-headed woodpeckers or pileated woodpeckers that may also feed upon it. So making a choice of planting an oak instead of a Bradford pear can be a big deal. Wow, I love that. Okay, that's okay. Amazing. Any other tips? Would you suggest people maybe getting bat boxes, bird boxes? Yeah, so like uh, one of the things that we have at the nature station here is we have bat roosting boxes. And up until about 2012, we had about 500 little brown bats mm. in it. And little brown bats are weren't was once one of the most common bat, but also one of the more common mammals that you would have found in the United States. And mm. now they're even looking at putting it on the endangered species list. Oh, my God. And by putting up a bat box, you give a safe, easy location for those mother bats to raise their young. And you get the benefit because the, those bats then come out and then they uh, will eat a lot of insects that are in your yard, including sometimes mosquitoes, and, and then um, fertilize the rest of your yard. Um, in 2012, my nature center, that, that bat house, got hit by white nose syndrome mm. because of the local caves, and all those bats died. Okay. So they, 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 January came about, and they, all, they, came, they, got, they flew out of the cave, and they came out to the nature center. So, okay. Um, very briefly, can you go into the white nose syndrome for people? Yeah. So, so one of the, the big factors in backyard wildlife is that an invasive fungus that came over from Europe, probably maybe on a, a spelunker's shoe, got into a cave in New York. And what it does is there are several species of bats that have to hibernate in caves. Um, and this fungus gets on them, grows on them, and wakes them up during this critical hibernation time period. And when a bat wakes up, they use up a lot of resources, a lot of their fat resources, to bring their body up from a hibernation state to an active state. Uh, and it's harder for them to go back into hibernation. So a lot of times they'll fly out because they're, they're starving to death looking for insects. And it's in January, and they're it's not going to find it. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to die. And a lot of times, just like what happened to us, these bats will fly back to where their summer roosting spots is, where their summer feeding spots are. And they're going to find that they can't survive very long out there because they're not going to get the insects that they need. So they starve to death. They starve to death. Yeah. Oh if they don't God. get uh, impacted by the cold itself. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. And what's being done with white nose syndrome? So there, there's a couple things. I mean, uh, particularly, and there's a cave. There's an artificial cave in our area that they're trying to do work with, where they can encourage bats to go in there, and and then they can kind of clean it and and try to keep those bats bats alive. Um, there is a probiotic that they can put on bats that has shown some promise. Uh, they don't know how to give it to you know. Because before the probiotic, you had to put on each individual bat, and then, you know we're talking millions and millions of bats. So, can it be put into an aerosol, or can it be done in that kind of way? Obviously, they're protecting more of these caves and making sure that you know just 
you know, people don't go in them. Uh, bat biologists have to disinfect their nets and their shoes and their equipment to make sure that they're not spreading it around. So it's a very serious issue, and there, there's there's some hope with it, uh, but it is something that we've still got to be concerned about and not let it off their radar screen. We do, because bats help farmers. I mean, think about it. This is like our natural pest control. What is that? Can you give us a fun stat with how many insects a bat can eat in a night or in a year? What? It's insane. Well, you know, Bat Conservation International will often make the, the the claim that, you know, one little brown bat can eat a thousand mosquitoes, I believe, in a night. Wow. Now, mosquitoes, it, yes, it can eat a mosquito, but mosquitoes like popcorn, you know, it, it may or may <laughs> not go for it. It may want to go for a burger instead, so it's going to go after a beetle or a moth. Sure. Uh, but it has the capability of eating it. It is one of the predators of that th- those animals, and uh, so that definitely helps us. You know, big brown bats, you know— Billions of dollars are saved by big brown bats eating a lot of the the pests that go after um, corn, for instance. Yep, you know, yep. so you're talking about farmers, and and they're a little bit bigger bat, and they like big open spaces, and so they're going to go after that bigger stuff, and it really helps us agriculturally. Absolutely, good shout out, good shout out for the bats. We love bats. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit, John, because I know you have some venomous species at the Woodlands Nature Station. Yeah. I, and I find this too, cause I get a lot of calls, emails, people who find a snake in their yard. Um, you know, we only have one venomous snake here and that's the great basin rattlesnake. But can you talk to us really quick? What do you try to tell people who have venomous snakes or venomous animals in their backyards? Well, you know, it, it is a tough one. It's probably one of the tougher things that we have to deal with because we do have four venomous species that are found in our area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the timber rattlesnake, uh, the the copperhead, the cottonmouth, and a very small population of western pygmy rattlesnakes. And people do come across them. They do run across them, particularly the copperheads. Yeah. Uh, you know, that 90% of venomous snake bites in Kentucky are copperhead bites because it is a species that's gonna that can be found in a park or in your backyard. And, and the thing I kind of tell them is that um, – you know, in all my experience out here, and obviously being a blind guy, you would think I'd run into a bad yeah. situation, but I haven't. Is that these things stay away from us? They are they are they are shy. Uh, they're actually kind of hard to aggravate to the point where they they would bite you. Uh, it's not impossible, but it, it does take a little bit to kind of aggravate them. And they and they tend to be in a lot of times environments that people aren't in. So the cottonmouths in the real swampy areas. They're not going to be all that often on a beach where you're swimming or out mm-hmm. in the middle of the lake. Mm-hmm. You know, timber rattlesnakes like those rocky cliffs, and, and that's not necessarily where someone's going to be, be hiking. Uh, copperheads try to stay hidden. Uh, I also try to encourage them to look at other snakes as positives. You know, I always encourage people that, you know, not to look at all snakes in a negative way, particularly, you know, the king snakes. And the black racers and the, and, the, and the rat snakes are the ones that you, you know, if you're really nervous about copperheads, to have those in your yard, keep those in your yard because they help either directly compete with, you know, a rattlesnake or a copperhead or they eat them. You know, a king snake eats a rattlesnake. And I've gotten to see, it took two hours, but a, rat, a king snake eat a rattlesnake before. Wow. It was pretty awesome. Really? You saw the yeah, whole it, thing? You saw like the attack or did you just come across it eating a rattlesnake? <sighs> I came across it eating the rattlesnake, so the attack was already over. Oh uh, the snake God. had already the snake had already passed, but the the, the it, to see the king snake try to swallow that thing was pretty amazing. And it swallowed the whole thing. It swallowed the whole thing. My Gone. 
goodness. Yeah, and I always tell people, like like you said, they're more scared of you than you are of them. And as long as you don't provoke them, I mean, snakes are just, they're so beneficial, you know? And just for rodent control, you know? Oh, I agree. And, and, and the other thing, this is, this is uh, you know, another positive, because I, I like to look on the positive thing. In, in my 23 years here, I have seen some positive growth in the way that people look at some of these animals that were, you know, people were scared of for years. You know, wolves have made a, a lot of progress. There's still a lot of fear, but they have made a lot of progress in how people view them. Not everybody thinks of them as, you know, something scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, bats definitely have increased in popularity. Everybody wants a bat box. Yeah. Uh, and snakes have actually made, uh, I think it's even because of the digital camera and social media. Uh, because in my time here, you know, we, we would try to go out, my naturalist and us, we'd try to go out if we heard a report of a rattlesnake and maybe move it off the road so it sure. didn't get hit. You know, and there are certain times of the year that the rattlesnakes are on the move. There's, you know, it's usually during August. And we try to make sure that, you know, we keep our eyes and ears open for that so that they, you know, these poor creatures don't get run over or somebody swerves and hits them. And I am finding that case to be less. And what I'm finding more is people throwing cell phones in my face and say, look what I just saw. And they're excited. And and they didn't run the animal over and cut off its rattle. But what they did was they took a picture and had it as a memory, which is a good – I like hearing that. Wow. I never realized. You're right. You're, you're right. That is very interesting because back 10 years ago, maybe a souvenir would have been cutting off the rattle, killing the snake. That's right. Or now it's like, look what I saw crossing the road. Mm-hmm. That is so – that is uh, – yeah, I 100% agree with you, 100%. It, and it's, it's, a, it's a trend that's happened in the last 10 years that I'm seeing some of this that some of these animals, maybe it's because people aren't as connected with the outdoors as they used to be, but mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That is so funny. I um, We have a family friend who messaged me a video of a rattlesnake last week, and I was like, oh my God, what did you do with it? Because he comes from like a country background, and his grandfather used to kill rattlesnakes on their property. And I re- and he said, oh, I did nothing. And he just he led it across the road and he showed me that video. That's so weird. It was like, that's just like, I don't know, deja vu with that story. Well, you know, and, and, and timber rattlesnakes, I actually, I, I love them a lot. You know, they're their biggest snake. They're the most venomous snake. But in, in my 20 years here, uh, you know, where the staff have, say, removed them from, you know, the, the, the nature station or from some of the grounds or off the road, you know, I kind of did a survey of the staff was like have you ever had one strike at us and no nobody's had one strike at us you know we're, we're, we're hooking it we're putting it in a bucket to move it off the road all that stuff i mean we've had them rattle at us but we've yeah. never had any of that aggression that she now obviously we didn't hurt them but um you know i i find that compelling to know that these things aren't their, their first instinct is not to attack you their first mm-hmm. instinct is to, to coil up maybe try to get away uh, scare you a little bit, but uh, only as a last resort, go for the with the venom. Yeah, and I also tell people they would rather save that venom, it, it, that that resource, like you know, for their prey. Like they don't need, they don't want to use it. Like it expends energy to create this. You know what I mean? So they want to rattle, they want to warn you. They don't want to use that venom. Um, they only use it as a last resort. And you know, and that, and that's true of um, 
even a cottonmouth, you know, cottonmouth has a little bit more of aggressive stance, you know, a cottonmouth will kind of rear back and, I mean, it gets the name cottonmouth because it will open up its mouth yeah. and its mouth is bright white. Sure. And even that, you know, it will, it looks scary and it looks like it's going to attack you, but it still doesn't really strike unless you are super provoking it uh, because it doesn't want to mess with you. It sees that you're bigger and knows that it's probably going to come out on the losing end on it. And so um, the cottonmouths that we've come across have just never really been that aggressive. Yes, absolutely. And I once again, I think when a lot of people get bit is either when, one, they're drinking alcohol, two, they're mm-hmm. trying to kill the snake. I mean, it's usually men in their 20s trying to... <laughs> no, seriously, they did like... I've, oh, I've oh. read something. Like, it's usually drunk men in their 20s who are trying to kill the snake or trying to show it off or do this and that with their buddies, and they end up getting bit. No, you're exactly right. Uh, so one of the places that you can get good information, good statistics, is the Kentucky Poison Control here. And um, so they, when I was talking to them one time, they were giving me those exact statistics of like, if you look at when you break down the snake bites that you're going to come across, it's 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 young men. They usually have something in their system, yep. and they're getting bit in the hand because they're either trying to catch the snake or kill it. Yes. And and that's those are statistics I often put out to people because people are always worried about stepping on it. And unfortunately, there are probably a case here and a case there in the state that somebody stepped on it in the wrong way and, they, you know, got them and they, it was unintentional or they stuck their hand someplace that they weren't looking and, and they got bit. But for the most part, those statistics still hold true. Yes, absolutely. Just leave snakes alone and you'll be fine. And just watch where you step. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Just be aware of your surroundings. Awesome. Well, John, we are coming up to an hour. I have really, really enjoyed speaking with you. There are people listening maybe uh, one day who want to become a naturalist. Do you have any uh, pointers for them or advice to lead them down the journey of of kind of doing what you do? Because you've had just a successful career in in the industry. Yeah, and you know, I I do. I I always tell people, particularly, you know, because we get a lot of kids that are volunteering, or we get college kids that want to get a job in in this field. And the best thing that you could do is one, when you're young, read and watch everything that you can. Study nature. I would definitely, when you get into college, try to get involved in as much stuff as you can. You know, whether it's something that your wildlife society club is doing, whether it's something that your pre-vet club is doing. Uh, try to, you know, take internships during the summer that gives you that experience. When I'm looking at resumes, I'm looking at what you guys can bring to me. And if you got a lot of experience, and particularly if you're going to become an educator, a lot of kid experience, then that's golden for me. I, I need particularly the kid stuff uh, because I could teach you a lot of the other stuff. But if you have a good you know, personality and you're friendly with kids and maybe you have some animal care experience as well, uh, that's very valuable for me. And, and and when you do get an internship, take advantage of everything that they offer, any kind of little bit of extra work, even if it's outside your work hours. You know, when I was an intern here, I went and did elk radio telemetry. I did frog surveys. I did migratory bird surveys. You know, I took advantage of everything that was offered. Now, I wasn't the main person that was responsible for those, but I was there as a witness. And I felt that that gave me a heads up. Uh, a lead up into my job that I currently have. That's great. Do that. That's a good pointer. I've never had anyone say, but if you're in your teens, work at a daycare, work at a Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, at at a YMCA, a day camp. That's a great, if you want to be a naturalist, you're going to deal with kids. That would probably make you stand out over someone who doesn't have kid experience. 
Well, you know, I don't want to give all my hiring secrets out there, but I, yeah, one, of the que- <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the questions I always had to pose to myself is, can I see this person doing a puppet show? And oh. puppets are an easy way to, to get across to little kids. Uh, I remember one time that we did a puppet show for this little preschool group, and they saw a snake on the trail. And, and we talk about snakes in the puppet show. And the little girl, the teacher got upset and got nervous. It was just a king snake. Yeah, yeah. And um, the little girl said, oh, don't worry. If we just give it its space, you know, we, we, it'll be okay. And, and the little girl remembered that message when she was out on that hike. Oh, man. And so it just shows that how that does impact kids, especially at an early age. That is awesome. Great, great value bombs right there, John. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there a way people can find more information about the Woodlands Nature Station? Are you guys on, I'm, I'm assuming, social media? Yeah, so you can look at uh, look for the Waving Bobcat or our Bobcat logo okay. uh, at, uh, at at Woodlands State Nature Station for both Instagram, Instagram and Facebook. Okay, and I will put the links in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much, man, for taking the time, for reaching out. I had such a good time speaking with you. And honestly, keep me updated with your adventures, man. I could see you going to South Africa and, and seeing wild dogs or Botswana or Namibia. Like, dude, that's incredible, man. No, it does. It those places sound so amazing. I mean, just think about a place like called the Skeleton Coast. How about oh, that? That's yes. exciting. Have you seen that that nature documentary about the Skeleton Coast? It's so yeah. Ass- oh yeah, I'm sure you have. Yeah. I have it on like a VHS tape. It's so cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's so cool. Awesome. Yeah, that's it. it is. It looks awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. No problem, Corbin. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.